Welcome to the Anti-Woke Podcast. What do you do after you've used the CIA to steal the 2020 election? You say your opponents are a threat to democracy. What do you do if you're racist as hell against whites? You say your opponents are racist. Let's discuss that and also, where are the aliens? But first, let's joke around with stuff you're not supposed to joke around with. Don't be letting Beyonce rent an entire floor of a fancy New York hospital. That's racist. Would you like to be gay? Well, today I'm going to help you figure out how to switch to being gay. But you're probably just too old. It turns out Trump did build a wall, and he did get Mexico to pay for it. And now Biden's using that wall, and Mexico's still paying for it. That ain't a deer on the railroad tracks. I hope to God it's a long-haired dog. How do you know if a special counsel is too corrupt to take over a case after a corrupt plea deal? Well, when he's the one who did that corrupt plea deal. So NPR was accusing country music of being racist the other day. On August 1st, one of their shows, I forget the name, had an episode called How Racism is Used in the Marketing of Country Music. And it sounds like on August 1st, the Hot 100, the, fir- the top three songs um, were country songs. One of them was Jason Aldean's You Can't Try That in a Small Town, which is an anti-Black Lives Matter riot song. Morgan Wallen, who said the N-word, not to any black people, basically because he's, boy, I want to say wigger. I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. Anyways, he was using African-American vernacular and got caught on camera doing it. And I think Morgan Wallen may be the biggest movie, st- movie music star in the world right now. Or, you know, he's like up there with, I don't know, Taylor Swift. I'm not sure who's the biggest. People always say Beyonce, but I think that's, you know, whatever. You say that because you want to look like a good person pushing diversity. Because I don't think she, she, she doesn't go out and do much. She doesn't release much. I don't, I don't think. Oh, right. I think maybe she had twins in the last couple of years. There's a thing where she rented an entire floor of a fancy hospital in New York. And that proved that America, its medical system was racist against blacks. I forget how that worked, but I did a podcast on it. Don't be letting Beyonce rent an entire floor of a fancy New York hospital. That's racist. And then there's Luke something, which is another country star, and he did a cover of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Black lesbian. You know, there's a black lesbian who, whatever, without affirmative action, succeeded. She wrote a good song, a song good enough for a country music white man to cover today and go to number one. I don't think her version ever hit that high. And I think his version sounds exactly like hers. He didn't add nothing about his truck or his dogs. Although if he had, I would listen to that. You get a fast truck, put your dog in the back somewhere. And then little did anyone know, but I believe this week, the chart's not out as I'm speaking, but number one is going to be Rich Men from Richmond, or north of Richmond, from a guy named Oliver Anthony. And he's a total nobody, you know, a guy who has a guitar and sings. And I think he's from Virginia. And I don't know, he has ni- someone said he has 90 acres and three dogs. And then Washington, D.C. is north of Richmond, Virginia, I guess. If, if I understand the way his song is titled. 
And I didn't think the song was that great. I mean, I do like actually more old timey style music than most people, but I don't know, it was all right. It was all right. But you know, I think because of the message and then somehow the interwebs, someone talked about it on Twitter and it blew up and now it's number one. But basically right now there's a mixture of anti-woke or conservative or pro-working class. Each song kind of depends. But there's a thing in music going on right now, in specific country music, where people are using music to do a movement of some sort. And I don't know, but I think all of this stuff is coming out of TikTok. Like, it's not clear why TikTok is not suppressing people like the other big tech companies, you know, Facebook, YouTube. Is it because TikTok has Chinese owners and they're just incompetent? Or are they trying to, you know, bring America down by having a second political view available on the internet? But Trump was trying to shut TikTok down back in the day, and the Democrats are still, they're talking about it now, whatever. There's a through line there. The deep state wants to shut down TikTok, and I don't think they can let it go forever. You know, it's going to be, it's going to get Trump reelected, basically. They're going to need to shut that company down. But so NPR did this podcast. It's 15 minutes long. It's nice and short. If you, I don't know who the hell would listen to my podcast with a friend. Well, except for some train conductors. But um, I recommend going and listening to that 15-minute podcast. It really was cracking me up. I mean, they don't intend it to be funny. But I've created, I think, I don't know, three or four minutes of clips from that 15-minute thing. You can hear how many times they're talking about racism. But basically, it's kind of the punchlines. You're not getting the the lead-up jokes to it, so... But I'll give you three things to try and prime you for the jokes. So, listen for... Hmm... Right, 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 and Martinez. Test footage from those uprisings flash across the screen. Not to mention, Aldine himself is singing in front of a courthouse where a black teen was lynched, and in a town only 40 minutes from where the KKK was founded. It's now the number one song in the U.S., Is that what it takes to be a successful country artist today? Racism? He too gained notoriety for being racist. A couple years ago, he was caught on tape using the N-word. Just like Aldine, he was pulled from CMT, and also like Aldine, that only made him more popular. Again, I have to ask, is racism what it takes for country music to go number one? Country music, which comes from black music, It is really the huge contradiction at the center of country music, that it's somehow both become this symbol of racism, but it's also just built on such multiracial, diverse things. I have a question to Amanda Martinez. She's a country music historian at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. To know how country music became this symbol of racism and why country music fans are flocking to stars like Aldine and Wallen, who are peddling racist rhetoric today. When record executives went to record these artists, you have to remember this was the era of Jim Crow segregation. So they recorded this music along racial lines. The last few years is that even though racism has, in a way, defined country music as long as it's existed for 100 years, it really has not been until the last few years that it has been publicly, seriously pressured to reckon 
with that racism, as I think in turn made these kind of outcries against racism. Yeah, I mean, I think on the surface with Beyonce's politics and political messaging, it's calling for greater liberation of more people, whereas Mm. Aldine is calling for the opposite, right? There was a moral panic surrounding jazz. And at that point, jazz was black music, right? Right, right, right. But it was also decried as the devil's music. And you had a lot of famous white supremacists like Henry Ford, for instance. Music continued to be held up as the kind of white moral superior. I'm talking about the base audience, right? The base targeted audience. I'm not trying to say this is reflective of all listeners. I think that, A, they want to listen to white men, and they want to stick it to any kind of progressives who might be calling for a more inclusive country music space is with the Luke Combs, Tracy Chapman cover of Fast Car, because I think that there is a very superficial reading of that cover that supposedly this is something that redeems country music's systemic racism, right? Because this is a guy covering a song by a black woman. And I how country music has often deflected claims of racism of, you know, see, we have this one piece of a black presence here, so we're not racist. There are some glimmers of a more kind of inclusive, hopeful future for country music. That was Amanda Martinez. She's a country music historian at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I got some interactions from listeners this week. If you listen to me through Spotify, somehow you can interact. Um, I don't use Spotify, so I can't explain how. But I did a poll. I said, would you rather Trump and Biden both go to prison or have them face off for the presidency? And one person chose both go to prison and five people chose face off for the presidency. And Chopper22 left a comment. He said, Again, an awesome pod. Don't ever quit. I use your stats in conversation every day. I know you work really hard looking these up. Well, thanks, Chopper, but I don't work that hard. And then Dan said, Enlightening as always, you have gotten a few of my conductors as weekly listeners. Sitting on a train listening to Anti-Woke is something we look forward to every week. Good work. Thanks, Dan, but keep your eye on the road. And I have a friend, IRL, who's a train conductor. I don't think he's related to these comments, but I thought I might say some stuff about being a train employee that I know about. So first off, you know, in the last year or so, Biden crushed the train union and made them go back to work and said they couldn't strike. So, you know, he stands with all unions, except for when he crushes them. And my buddy has told me some stories. So I believe it's called lay it down or laid them down, something like that, when a train car goes off the rails. And in fact, train cars go off the rails all the time. But they do it in the train yard. Um, Basically, they put like nice new train tracks on the long distance runs where you see the train, you know, going along the highway. And then when those train tracks and I think the, the railroad ties, all the, all the gear, the road basically gets too old for the, gets too old, they take it and they use it in the rail yard. 
because it's cheaper and because they're using old gear, uh, sometimes the train cars go off. And it's not like giant crashes getting the news or something. I think they, they just go off a little bit. And then they have a special kind of other train that has a crane that lifts them back onto it and then they patch up that spot. But it's called laying them down. And then some gross stuff. So if there's something in the way, a train can't stop. The train basically hits it. And of course the train wins. My buddy said that there's just a certain sound when a train car hits a deer, it makes a bong that you will never forget. And then I don't think he was working that day, but some of the trains in his yard ran over a homeless lady. And I think she was wearing a bunch of rags like homeless ladies sometimes do. And so the train conductor and engineers, they didn't know what they were hitting. They thought it was a dog. It was just like a wadded up thing on the tracks. And anyways, the trains kept running over it until they eventually figured out what it was and got it out of there. And I can't remember exactly, but there's a company rule. If you hit a person, which I think, I think there's a lot of people who commit suicide by jumping in front of trains, so it's not that rare. And if you hit a person, I forget what it is, but I think you automatically get two days off paid. And that's for your mental health, so you get like a long weekend and a thousand bucks. And my buddy's grandpa was a train conductor. I think that's how he got the idea. Like, you don't need uh, an education. It's just, you know, whoever thinks about going and getting a job as a train conductor. But anyways, his grandpa was a train conductor. And back in the day, his grandpa... So, okay, every train has one engineer and one conductor today. And I think it's been like that for a long time. They don't put a ton of people on there. There isn't someone in the caboose. And now there's strict rules. But in his grandpa's day, they used to get a fifth each. Each of the guys would get a fifth of whiskey or whatever, and then they would just drink that as they drove from, I think it was like Portland to Seattle. And they would reach their destination, they would sleep, they would buy another fifth of whiskey, and drive back. And with a train, you know, if you're like totally drunk, I bet you're 99.3% as safe as someone who's sober, so I think they should still let them drink, but anyways, they don't. Or if you hit a person, you can drink the next two times you're on a train. And train workers are kind of jaded about trains. You know, there's some people who read about trains and think trains are so cool, and what the train workers call those people is foamers. Not sure why, but they do not like foamers. They look down on foamers. You know, there's like people who, they'll, they'll be going past a bridge or something, and they'll see the foamers there who just, that's what they do on their off time. They just wait at bridges and watch the trains go by. Maybe, I don't know if they wave at the conductor, and then the conductor gives them a steely-eyed gaze back saying, you know, go have sex with a woman. Stop foaming. And my buddy gave me a train lantern once. It was a modern LED one. And they have, a, they have vending machines at the yard that have like multi-hundred dollar equipment that you can get. I think you have a card and you're allowed to, I mean, whatever. You can't be getting the, you can't be getting the lantern every day, but they, you know, they allow you to get so, you know, so many lanterns per year or whatever. And then so he always maxes out his card and gets extra lanterns. And the one he gave me was banged up and kind of messed up and it doesn't work now. So he probably should have replaced it. And then, uh... My conductor buddy, we have a mutual friend 
who was like, wow, you, you're a train conductor now. That's cool. And so he was buying him little tiny train set cars like every so often. Like they get cool. There's a, I don't know the name of it, you know, H gauge or whatever. There's a, there's ones that are teenier than you ever knew. And they do all the stuff that whatever the normal ones do, which is just go on a track. But anyways, he was buying these teeny little cars for my train buddy and, you know, leading towards a set. And again, my train buddy didn't, didn't give a shit. I think he just threw it in a box, didn't care. And those little ones are expensive. Time for our ongoing crime segment. And I'm feeling the urge to whine about how I'm a good person. So let's do some of that. Well, it's kind of like this acronym I made up a couple years ago, when I was going to talk about trans people, I would say it. I can't remember what it was. Furf my furf. But each time I talked about trans people, I was saying something like, trans people should be able to lead a respected by everyone and, you know, fulfilling life. Then I would go to my butt. So it was like, you know, trans people should be respected would be T-P-S-B-R. So I guess the, the name would start with a Toopspur. Anyways, I was going to be like, Toopspur Rupravuf. And then it would only take one second instead of me having to say that trans people should be respected and be able to, you know, live their best lives or whatever crap I was saying. I mean, I made up the acronym one time and I, I never could remember it or use it again because it was a terrible one. Instead of an acronym, what I needed was a backronym. Like I should have picked the the acronym first and then chose the words later. Let's see, trans has a T in it. We need some L's for life. Maybe tall ladder, trans, authentic, lead, life, love, another, desperate disco, ectoplasm, respect. Well, anyways, you can see, you should get out a pen and paper and do it more than just on the fly to get it right. But the crime segment initially was about opposing the racist narrative that white men are the mass shooters in America today. And I'll tell you, the woke people, they've done a pretty good trick because if you want to fight racism, like I do, like, like I'm doing here, uh, the only thing you can do is you have to bring up the fact that blacks make up 75 to 80% of the mass shooters. And I believe it's mass-shootings.com info if you want to go see who's doing the shootings in America today and the stats. But that was my crime segment and the first six months, January, you know, etc. There's pretty much a mass shooting every week or at least every other week and I was keeping track of them and you know basically it was what the media covered not how many not not all the mass shootings because like I say you know those are like in Chicago done by black people no one cares. But I was keeping track, and I forget the numbers now. It was, you know, we had a couple Asian mass shootings, maybe four black, four white, a Hispanic or two. I don't remember. But anyways, the numbers were getting unwieldy, and so I said, um, July 1st, I was restarting the counter. And this time I wrote it down. I emailed it to me so I wouldn't forget. I think we left off at one white and two black, or maybe vice versa. But anyways, basically, as soon as I was... <laughs> my bread and butter, my guaranteed thing to talk about, um, was all set up and ready for me. The mass shootings in America stopped, or at least the ones that the media covered. 
I mean, we're in the summer right now, so the ones in Chicago and Baltimore, I mean, they must be off the chain, but no one's talking about them. And so I may start off with a, a new counting system here. Oh, that's right. I'd let, I'd let a, a white serial killer into the mass shooting numbers. I don't know. It's, you know, it's hard to say what crime should count. I think if I'd reset the numbers and start over, it'll just be whatever the biggest crime of the week is on NBC Nightly News. But so not counting, but at least as of Thursday this week, um, the biggest crime is still that Montgomery, Alabama brawl on the docks where about three white men jumped a black guy. I believe all the white men did not have shirts on. I mean, it's at the docks, but still there's something about it. Basically, they were all, you know, they were at the water. There was tens or hundreds of people around. Pretty much everyone had their shirts on, except for the white guys who did the jump, jumping in. There's some sort of lesson there about shirts and skins. But people are calling for it to be charged as a hate crime. I mean, what people? I don't know. Woke people on the internet, maybe on the nightly news. But they're not going to do it. Anyways, it was just such a weird, rare occurrence. Like I said last week, you know, you could, you could find a black on white jumping, jumps, jumpings. I'm not sure about the, how you say the word, like, you know, I got jumped, that works out, but what, what if you're going to do it in the future? Like, I guess you go jump someone, okay. Like, I had a buddy in high school, he was a Native American guy, and he was part of a gang in, Port in Portland, Oregon back then, they had a gang called the Art Fiends, which was like skaters who went around and spray-painted graffiti, I mean, sort of, pretty much they like did drugs and, I don't know. I think they just did drugs, and they were skaters. And we had the real Bloods and Crips back then, so anyway, they, were, they weren't like that kind of gang. But they did jump in their members. So, you know, I got jumped in. You know, in case someone doesn't know, when you join a gang and you get jumped in, that means that a bunch of the, gang, a bunch of the people who are already in the gang beat you up all at once. And you fight back as good as you can, and I think, you know, Forever after, you, you'll at least have one good story that you and your gang buddies can laugh about. Remember that time you got jumped in and we knocked you out with the first punch? Or you took out three of us? Or, you know, it'll be a good story no matter what. But these white guys, they didn't have shirts on. They were older. I think they were probably, I mean, they weren't in their 20s. They were probably in their 40s. It's just not the usual getting jumped video. So there had to be more of it. And, uh... There's a YouTube channel, Dr. Grande, who is like a psychologist who breaks down crime things. And he's woke, and he, he really did not put any blame on all the black people who jumped in after the initial fight and were like hitting the women over the head with the chair and stuff, which last week I also exonerated them. But he did a little bit of a deep dive. I mean, basically, there has to be more to the story. This is so weird. And the answer is these three white guys... They were on their pontoon boat, um, a nice, a nice boat. It looks, you know, they were doing all right. They had had run-ins with the captain of the city ship, and the city ship was like a, I think it was a paddle wheel. It was like an old paddle wheel boat where you take a bunch of tourists out for maybe a lunch or a dinner and see the city. So they already had beef with the white captain of this paddle boat from previous. Uh, occurrences. And the day of the jumping, 
they were drunk and swearing and flipping off the captain of the boat. And I think that went on for a decent amount of time. So that's probably where your hate crime kind of falls apart. It was all about, it was, it was, it was white on white. And then the black guy, who I think was the second in command, he got off the big boat, went down the docks, and apparently all that needed to happen was the pontoon boat needed to be moved three feet down the dock. That doesn't sound right to me, but that's what, that's what I heard. And so the black guy told them to move their boat a little bit, and they said no. I think they started cussing him out. Basically, at, at any opportunity, they started cussing people out. And then the black guy started pushing the boat with his hand, and that was when they jumped him. So, you shouldn't obstruct a city ship on a city dock. You shouldn't touch someone else's boat, even if they're obstructing your boat. Most importantly, you shouldn't physically attack someone, even if they touch your boat. But so, there you go. Hopefully, there'll be a mass shooting uh Friday or Saturday or Sunday for me to talk about. I mean, not hopefully, but but hopefully. What's kind of crazy to me about this Alabama brawl is that I think it almost shows the lack of racism in America. Like, I think these drunk white guys were colorblind. Like, I have friends who have been known to drink too much and get in fights and... You know, that was mostly in our 20s. Um, but, you know, even occasionally, 30s, 40s, you know, depends how drunk, depends the situation. But I would say, you know, we live in Oregon, and I think now that we're 50 years old, they would still get in a brawl, but I don't think they would get in a fight with a black person. Not because they're scared, but just, you know, after Trump got elected, you just, you just, you shouldn't be mean to a black person because of, you know, something, something Trump. But it looks like Alabama is living in the past. Like, let's brawl like it's 2010. We got a black president. We can, we can do whatever the hell we want. So there ain't much crime this week. Let's look at one single day of NBC Nightly News, Thursday. They had three crime segments. Um, the first one was two white men shot at a black FedEx driver who was driving a U-Haul. And they were charged with attempted murder, and the prosecutors did not turn over all the evidence during the discovery process, and the judge declared a mistrial, I think in Mississippi. And I think the impression they were trying to give is that in America, whites are always shooting at blacks, and then the justice system lets them off the hook. And I don't think they mentioned that this means the defendants are going to have to hire their lawyers for a whole nother case. So in fact, it's a good way to take someone down. You know, you make them spend all their money on the first case, throw it away, and then make them do it again. Because the state has the money to do it repeatedly. And the second story was nine cops in Antioch, California were arrested by the FBI. And the headline was kind of, they had sent racist texts. I have trouble saying that word, texts. And one of the cops had bragged about how his dog had bit 28 suspects. And after that, they said the cops had been arrested for wire fraud, I mean, you know, crimes. And I think the intended impression from that was that racist white cops are out there sending racist texts all the time and sicking their dogs on black people. Oh, the first segment, they said that they said white men. 
The second segment, they didn't say anything about race and they didn't show any pictures of the cops. And no pictures is always sus. So I went and looked it up and the nine cops, it was like three white, three blacks, and two or three Hispanics. And the racist texts may have been, you know, blacks talking about Asians. But anyways, NBC Nightly News, it uses the fact that, you know, your brain, default American, and especially default cop is white. So there's like, don't show any pictures, say you got some racist cops. And then the viewer's like, ah, racist white cops, racist against blacks. Anyways, that may or may not be true. We don't know. I think they don't know. The FBI is hiding that. The FBI knows that if they don't say the, the, the race, then the media will not know the race. Basically, the FBI gaslights the media and allows them to be able to gaslight America. In general, in this case, we don't know. And those two situations, I think it happened in the last 24 to 48 hours before the news segment. And then they had one that was a little bit older. It was uh, flash robberies where tons of young black people run into a store and grab everything and break all the windows and the glass in the cases and run out with loot. And I don't know for sure. They, they made it difficult to tell the race because you know, most of these robbers are wearing balaclavas covering their face. But I think the viewers can watch that, and I think they know. They know what's going on. I mean, I don't know. My woke buddy, he might watch that and go, oh my God, white people breaking into a Nordstrom's again. And that was what happened this week. I don't think it was 48 hours. It was kind of an older story where they had bear sprayed some employees out of Nordstrom's. And the flash robbery segment, it was kind of just an excuse to show lots of footage of various flash robberies. I don't know if any of them were from the recent Nordstrom's situation. But I think someone was like, okay, let's show a bunch of footage of flash robberies. That, you know, that's fun for the viewer. Then like, okay, you know, people are going to think those are black people, because they are. Then let's, you know, let's show a couple white defendants in a court case where they shot at a FedEx driver. Does that even it out? They're like, I don't know if that evens it out quite. It's like, okay, how about we do a third one where we say, talk about evil cops, and we don't show their faces so the viewer thinks that they're white. Does that even it out? And they're like, yeah, I think that's right about even. And NBC Nightly News is hosted by Lester, more like Mo Lester, Holt, who, he's good, but he's a black guy. And I think that gives NBC Nightly News more leeway to put up fun video footage of black crime. I'd like to see an interview with Lester where they ask him how he feels about the ratio of racial mixing of the crime reporting on his show and whether or not he thinks his race plays anything to do. I mean, obviously he would not talk about that, but I'm pretty sure they're doing it. You could do a study. And I will say it almost, the way they ordered it, I'm not sure, but it was almost like they, it was almost like they were like, we have too much white crime. Let's put in a black segment. I mean, I'm sure it was the other way around, but that was kind of how it felt. So maybe this is just all in my head. In fact, if you want to double check what I'm saying, this is on YouTube. It's the only nightly news that's on YouTube. And you can go back, you know, look at the date of the podcast, go back on YouTube, find that the Thursday segment. You'll probably have to do like Rain Man where you know exactly, you know, what was 2,342 days ago? Oh, it was a Thursday. And you can find out that I'm totally wrong. And that, you know, if you quoted me, that makes you wrong. And in fact, everything you believe is totally wrong and white privilege does exist. 
Let's talk Trump. It's kind of like talking turkey. The big stories this week are the Hawaii, Lahaina wildfires and then the Trump indictments. And I don't find either one of them that interesting. Um, like when I watch the news and like I, on YouTube, you can see how long a segment is. And I'm like, oh, five minutes on the Hawaiian wildfire. I'm like, skip. And in fact, I've been to Hawaii once in my life and I spent a week in Lahaina. But I don't recognize anything in the pictures. So I don't know, it's just like another wildfire. You know, you had one, you had, you've seen them all. And Trump and his indictments are kind of getting boring to me too. I'm waiting for something to change. The thing that I'm waiting to change is to see if it affects polling for president, you know, for who's going to be president. And I think so far it hasn't affected nothing. Maybe all the indictments in general have added up to Republicans liking Trump more, but like this latest one, instead of telling, you know, they're like, Trump got indicted again. It did not change the polling. If you just said that, that would be the end of the story to me. Like, that's the thing I wanted to know, and then I would know it, and I could move on. But, gobble gobble. So, I learned something interesting. Trump did build the wall. And he did get Mexico to pay for it. At least metaphorically. So, I was listening to someone talk about Biden's immigration policies. And this was a left-wing person, and they were complaining how Biden was, how the Mexican National Guard was still being used to, I think, stop immigrants at the southern border of Mexico. Actually, that's right. It's, it's throughout all of Mexico. It's not just the southern border. But this left-wing person was talking about, I guess they were an immigration lawyer to help immigrants move to America. And she was helping a family from, I'm not sure, maybe Venezuela. And there's some sort of paperwork that lets you go through Mexico, like you can get on a bus, like buy a bus ticket. And um, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico. Last time I was there, they had army checkpoints, you know, on all the roads. Anyways, you can just show some paperwork and you're able to get past the checkpoints and buy bus tickets and do whatever you want. And you can pass through Mexico and go apply for asylum in America. But this person was complaining that, you know, this family... They waited months to get the correct paperwork so they could go through Mexico, but even though they finally got the paperwork, they just got harassed the entire way through all of Mexico. And I think they had to bribe, you know, every time the army stopped them, they're like, oh, we don't care about your paperwork, and they had to bribe them, stuff like that. It's like, my pockets are empty. I don't have any money. Oh, you have something we want. It's in your pants. In fact, I think you're hiding it in your daughter's pants. But anyways... The Mexican National Guard making it difficult for people to move to America. Um, it's a strategy or whatever, a policy that got implemented in 2019. And I believe whatever money the Mexican National Guard gets is paid for by the Mexican government. So that is kind of a wall that stops a lot of people from being able to easily go from Mexico and move into America. So, you know, 2019, Trump was president, so he kind of he built a wall. And kind of Mexico paid for it. And the 538 podcast had uh, three lawyers on to break down the new Trump indictment. And two of them were just peop lawyers with Trump derangement syndrome. They're like, they must find him guilty. Like, what do you mean they must? They must. Don't you know what a monster he is? They must do it. Like, that, that was their analysis. But the third guy was, he didn't have Trump derangement syndrome. And he was an expert in Georgia 
of racketeering cases. Rico, you know, they're charging Trump under Rico, which is like racketeering something, I believe corruption, something that starts with an O. I look up racketeering. Racketeering is a crime that's like a business. So like, you know, if, you, if you're selling drugs, that can be racketeering. You're not just attacking someone or raping, you know, you're not just murdering or raping someone. You are doing something to make money, like selling drugs or extortion or blackmail. Like that's all racketeering stuff. Normally it's associated with the mob. And so the one reasonable lawyer said, basically what's going on with this indictment versus the other four? I think I said there was five. Or what, I was counting the indictments wrong. Anyways, we're now up to four. New York State, two federal ones, and Georgia State. But he said what's going on with all of them is juries jury selection and just you know where are you taking the juries from so basically in new york and dc you're going to get juries that will convict donald trump even innocent or guilty they're going to convict him and then georgia it takes place in atlanta which is like half black or maybe more than half black There's a lot of people that hate trump in atlanta but for some reason the people that appear on juries in the county that atlanta is in um, you get right-wingers. So unless they do something special, if you just go by the juries, New York and the two federal cases will convict them, and the Georgia case will let them off. You know, it doesn't matter what the facts of the case are. And I'd heard a lot of lawyers, probably all Trump deranged, say that this Georgia case is, you know, cut and dry, Trump's guilty, but um, the latest non-zero podcast with Mickey Kaus, um, great thing, happens every week, highly recommend, um, he did, Mickey did a deep dive and he's like, this Georgia case is not cut and dry. In fact, it's weak. So it may be that the New York and the Georgia case are both very weak. I think people still think the classified documents one is strong. I mean, you could, you could send Biden to prison for the exact same thing, but anyways, they do have a strong case against Trump. It's just, anyway, the way the laws are set up, classified, you have any sort of classified document, anything, if they want to, they can send, to, send you to prison. That's the law. Any sniff of classified document stuff, you go to prison directly. And then the DOJ can decide who they charge. And so they can charge anyone they want or let anyone go. That's my understanding. And then there's a thing that I don't fully understand, but there's a chance that the Georgia case will be taken away from the state of Georgia and given to the feds. And so I think this is why. So Mickey was saying that in 2000, a lot of the stuff that Trump did this time in 2020, Al Gore did in 2000. In fact, anytime someone's going to say that they challenge an election, which is not illegal and it happens, I don't know about all the time, but you know, whenever there's a crazy close election, people are likely to challenge it because, hey, maybe you won. But anyway, so Al Gore and many other challenges, they do a lot of the same stuff as Trump. Like almost all exactly the exact same stuff as Trump. And, you know, the question is, did Trump do a couple extra things that turns it into this crazy threat to democracy? But Mickey was saying that, you know, if, if, if doing all the normal stuff that Trump did in Georgia means that he's guilty, well, he did that in a bunch of states. I mean, I think he did that in all the close states. I mean, why would the answer is, why wouldn't you do that? So... Basically, six states, and they're, you know, if they've got um, politically elected district attorneys who are totally partisan, like Georgia does, and I think 
lots of states. You know, it's just a, they have a they have a Democrat. They elected a Democrat to be district attorney in Georgia, and who knows? They probably got the same thing in Wisconsin, which was close. So, anyways, a bunch of states could try and prosecute Trump. And first off, I wish they would. That would be fun. That would kind of show how everything is bullshit if, like, every state that has a Democrat DA charges Trump and every state that doesn't, that has a Republican one, doesn't. But, but here's the thing. If it comes down to just the political party of district attorneys, you know, for every presidential election going forward, and it's just like... You just throw the guy, you know, you don't like who's running for president, you just throw him in jail. Or you tie him up in court for two years leading up to the election, more likely. Well, that's a problem. That's not how democracy is supposed to work. And so I think to prevent just perpetual partisan DAs from trying to steal elections, maybe, you know, succeeding or not, um... Maybe what you have to do is you just always take all those court, all those state court cases, roll them into one federal case, and then, you know, it can head up to the Supreme Court and you can finally have an answer and it can be done relatively quickly and not interfere with an election. So I think that's why maybe they will take the state case and turn it into a federal case. And now there's something called jury nullification. So in a court case, the judge gives instructions to the jury and they say, if you find that the... And defendant jumped more, you know, more than six inches high, then he must be, you must find him guilty. And if you find that he jumped less than six inches high, then you must find him innocent. And, you know, and then the, the judge determines the law, the jury determines the facts. And so the jury is like, you know, here's all the evidence. And they're like, five and a half inches or, you know, up oh, six and a half inches, he's guilty. Anyways. But what if the jury is like, yeah, he jumped... 10 feet. I don't care. I want to find him innocent. Well, that's called jury nullification. When you ignore the law and the judge and just do what you want. So I'm just going to read you the definition of jury nullification. Essentially, with jury nullification, the, the jury returns a, in quotes, not guilty verdict, even if jurors believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant broke the law. This can occur because a not guilty verdict cannot be overturned and jurors are protected regardless of their verdicts. And so I don't think, you know, to find someone guilty, even when that's not the law, I guess 12 of them would all have to agree. So that's, that's not what happens. But basically, it's you find someone innocent. You find someone innocent even though you think they're guilty. You're like, I don't agree with this law. I think I have a friend, an old lady. She, they asked her, you know, what she thinks about marijuana. And she's like, I will never convict someone on marijuana. I don't care what the law what law is. Anyway, so they didn't let her on the jury. But you can imagine someone who like says, oh yeah, I'll do whatever, and then gets on there and nullifies it. So just something to keep an eye on. I mean, you know, people hate Trump or love Trump, and they I think they find, you know, they're gonna find him, they're gonna think he's guilty or innocent before the trial even starts. So we may get to see some jury nullification. Something else about the Georgia indictment is it's the only one that can be on TV. Feds don't have cameras in the courts, and I don't think New York does either. So I think Trump will have to sit there in court and be on TV, and they'll... Well, I don't know. I guess it's not like a TV show where they can... You know, there's a studio, and someone's like, cut to Trump's face. But we'll see how that goes. So it just it makes me think. That one's on TV. I think at some point they're going to impeach Biden, and cameras are allowed in that. So it would not shock me if... 
both of those things are competing on TV at the same time period, right before the election. I'm going to play a clip from NPR about the election being stolen. Listen for baseless, fair and square, and solid evidence. Yeah, I mean, with Republicans, it's a totally different story. They're living in a completely different universe than Democrats and independents when it comes to Trump. You know, about half of Republican voters seem nearly locked in for him and seem to believe almost everything that he tells them about what he claims are witch hunts and double standards. And that includes his baseless election claims. You know, we know that Joe Biden won in 2020 fair and square, but a recent CNN poll showed that seven in 10 Republicans do not believe that. Mm. 56% of those Republicans who said that they believe Biden lost said that they based those views on get this solid evidence of which there's none right you know it really just shows how hyper-partisan our political environments become and the results of trump and other republicans relentless campaigns against expertise and definitive sources and once you're able to undermine those things you can really make people believe almost anything so i just listened to that clip so i can talk about it and it makes me laugh i don't know these clips are just cracking me up for real like laugh out loud so Trump's baseless claims that the election was stolen. I mean, there was no hiding of ballot boxes. And I don't know if Trump has switched over to talking about how the election was really stolen yet. So if he's still talking the old way, they are baseless. But not only did the FBI slash CIA steal the election using the Hunter Biden laptop, calling it Russian disinformation, etc., but a bunch of states put in place COVID protocols, changing voting, switching it to mail-in ballots. And I'm not going to say that was stealing the election because I don't know everything I need to know to say that. Anyways, the election was stolen, but it was by the CIA, basically. So Trump needs to switch what he's saying to turn NPR into pure liars whenever they say baseless claims. And the idea that an election where the CIA was trying to swing it because it was going to be so close and everyone knew that, that that's fair and square, obviously that ain't true. And then the 50-something percent who say that they have solid evidence and they're part of the 79% or whatever that say the election was stolen. What does that mean? That means that a little under half say the election was stolen, but they don't have solid evidence. I'd like to know more about that poll. But there's almost a year and a half to try and get past the mainstream media's total silence and tell people about how the election was stolen. And if the voting holds like it did last time, you just need to teach two out of every thousand voters about it. Well, that's Georgia, three out of every thousand Wisconsin, etc. And actually, I don't mention this enough, but I think a lot of people are still pissed off about January 6th. It was a close race in 2020 when it was Biden versus Trump. January 6th happened after that, so that probably puts Trump in a big hole. But I think if you can get people in the middle to understand the truth, hear the truth, that the election was stolen, that would get you out of a pretty damn big hole, especially since that's part of the reason for January 6th. And this is kind of after the fact, Monday morning quarterbacking, but as the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden stuff gets worse and worse, it makes it seem like a bigger and bigger deal that the CIA suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop stuff. Let's talk Hunter Biden. So the corrupt plea deal that the DOJ had with Hunter fell apart and they appointed a looking corrupt special counsel. Basically, he looks corrupt because he was the one that did the corrupt plea deal. 
But Sarah Isker on Advisory Opinions Podcast explained why it fell apart. So the thing I already knew was that it was funky because there was, I think, several tax charges and then maybe one gun charge. And then in the gun charge, it said, if you plead guilty to this gun charge, or whatever, yeah, I guess guilty, but it wasn't going to get any time, then we will never charge you with tax stuff ever again. And normally you would put that plea agreement thing in with the tax charges. Charges, Plead guilty to the tax charges, we'll never charge you with tax stuff again. I forget why, but anyways, it was just it was something they had to do that was shady to make it all work. And their motivation is they're trying to make it so that if Trump wins election, he can't sick the DOJ on Hunter and really throw him in prison forever. Like, you know, for reals, prison, prison, forever. Or until the next Democrat wins the White House and pardons him, I guess. But Sarah said the funky thing where they put the, put the uh, get-out-of-jail-free card into the gun charges part, it was like the, you know, like in the movies when they have, they're going to shoot the nuclear missiles and you need two keys. Two people with two keys have to agree and turn the key at the same time to, you know, so that one person can't do it, basically. So the Trump DOJ doesn't just have one key. And so anyways, it was going to be the DOJ had one key, and then the judge had one key. And in the history of plea deals, it's only the DOJ that has a key. Never the judge gets, gets their own key. And so that was kind of what the judge was like, hey, what's going on here? This ain't right. That was what messed everything up. I guess it shows you they're not entirely sure that Biden is going to win this upcoming election. Because if they were sure of that, they could just be like, you know, just give him whatever, protection through the DOJ, and we're going to have it next five, six years anyways. All right, and I was harassing my woke buddy about Hunter Biden this week, so I'll just read you that exchange. So I started it. The subject was, I can't find any MSM talking about this, even though it's incontrovertible. And then into the body of the emails, me, I said, shows how someone who gets their info from the MSM doesn't know shit. From Hunter's laptop, a text he sent his daughter Naomi. So this is all in quotes. This is a quote from the laptop. I hope you all can I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hurt it's really hard, but don't worry, unlike Pop, I won't make me give you half your salary. End quote. This is after he got 20 million dollars from China, Ukraine, and some other countries, maybe Azerbaijan, I forget. And then my woke buddy replied, "What slash who are your sources and what is their evidence?" In the meantime, I'll patiently let the wheels of justice roll on. You know, due process, innocent until proven guilty, etc. All those constitutionally protected rights that make up our legal system. This applies to Trump et al. too. I took an oath, and I take it seriously. And I said back to him, the source is Hunter Biden's laptop. Interesting response, though. I can see that your brain knows my info is correct. So you're already deflecting by deferring to the people who are the ones in charge of the cover-up. Your brain is right. Those are the correct people to defer to if you want to keep your false beliefs. And I continued. Also, I'm the opposite of a conspiracy theorist. I actually have a much higher bar for conspiracies than probably 99% of the population. That's why I always thought it was weird that people like however many directors of the CIA who are still on the CIA payroll would go out on a limb and lie and say the laptop wasn't real when they knew that it was. Why the hell would they do that? 
It looks like it's because they had read what's on the laptop. Remember, the FBI had the laptop for a year or two before the 50 intelligence agency bigwigs came out and signed a letter saying it was Russian disinformation. Conspiracy fact. Disney and Target seem to be struggling right now. Um, some or all the big companies are doing their quarterly earnings reports lately. And I was looking at Target's stock price. I think it went from 100, roughly 155 down to about $130 a share over this you know, trans swimsuit boycott situation. And I didn't look at all the numbers, but I would imagine that Target shareholders must have lost in the, you know, somewhere in the 10 to $40 billion range. Like I would imagine that, you know, shareholders, the big investment corporations like BlackRock, you know, they don't mind if they lose a few billion while they get to sexualize America's children. But I don't think they want to lose, you know, five, ten billion. And that'd be just per big investment corporation, possibly. As they say, a billion here, a billion there, it adds up to real money. And then Stephen Miller is some guy from the Trump administration, and he is suing Target for fiduciary duty, the fiduci, saying that the board of directors and the C-suite have not been minding the till because doing trans stuff, you know, can lose the company money and then you're not doing your job. And you could even be personally liable for that. And some of the woke media is saying that Stephen Miller started the boycott so he could then sue Target, but I don't think so. It was a, it was TikTok. It was moms on TikTok, I believe. But you can't get your woke viewers so excited about, oh, it's just, it's moms of kids. <laughs> get them. Get those goddamn moms of kids. Anyways, doesn't sound so good. And I haven't heard anyone serious say that they think that lawsuit is actually going somewhere. But on the other hand, it, you know, it's not fun to be sued. And to have standing to do a lawsuit, like you have to be, you have to lose actual money or something in this case. And so I don't I think they, they're suing on behalf of some guy who owns half a million dollars of Target stock or something. So if they won, then Target might have to pay that guy a hundred grand. I mean, it, it, it's no, it's it, the m amount of money is nothing in comparison to the giant corporations. It's more the idea of it all. Maybe scare other corporations or better yet, Maybe give other people who have a better case the idea that they should sue over this kind of stuff. Someone was saying that Target's defense is that they've been doing, they've been, you know, to, to put it the way their enemies say it, they've been, you know, sexualizing children for seven years and it never caused a boycott or affected the stock price before. So, you know, they weren't breaking their fiduciary duty. There's no reason for them to think that sexualizing children would uh, affect the stock price this time either. I'm trying to think of a company that may have possibly broken their fiduci uh, by doing weird gay stuff and, and would know better, like Disney. Disney's been doing it for, I'm not sure how many years now, but you know, if you do it for one year, fine. You know, all sorts of gay stuff was fine and forever. And you do it for one year, well, you didn't know. But you know, the next year, 
you should know better. And certainly like the third year, you should know better. And that's about where Disney is at. Or maybe that's the year coming up. And I've already mentioned that Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, was sounding depressed during his earnings call. But there's some new information out that may kind of explain it. Uh, someone keeps track of how much time people spend watching streaming shows versus it's called linear TV. You know, I guess if you watch cable or rabbit ears, they call that linear TV. And so for the first time ever, linear TV fell below half of total viewing time behind streaming. And so Disney owns ABC and a bunch of cable channels, ESPN. And so, you know, linear is down. That would make sense that they're struggling. But Disney also owns streaming, Disney Plus, which I think, you know, is huge. It's bigger. All their linear TV stuff, it doesn't add up to their Disney Plus thing. So, you know, basically they're more of a streaming company than a linear TV company. Even though Disney Plus loses tons of money and the linear TV makes tons of money, at least up till now. But basically, they had the right idea. I mean, everyone could see that linear TV was going down, which means the future is streaming and you want to get into streaming, and Disney did. And they got in huge. Like, they're, they're pretty big. Like, damn big. I believe they're number two after Netflix, and then they're way ahead of whoever's number three. But Disney Plus has been losing subscribers, I think at least three months in a row, maybe more, North American subscribers. Those are the only ones that matter. I don't know. I don't know if Mexicans pay a lot for Disney+. Plus. I mean, basically, they mean America. There was a bunch of headlines maybe half to a year ago about Disney+, Plus, or Disney Plus losing millions and tens of millions of subscribers, but they had paid a bunch of money for Cricket, and so they had a ton of subscribers in India who, like, pay them barely any money. So basically, anti-woke YouTubers who are willing to do clickbait when they don't have the receipts have been saying that Disney Plus has been losing subscribers for a long time. They're always talking about that, make a new video every day. But anyways, they are now losing North American subscribers, so it's the real deal. The two new movies at the box office this weekend are Blue Beetle and Strays. They both did poorly. Blue Beetle had 25 million, Strays had eight. So this is another DC superhero movie that flopped and then an R-rated comedy that flopped. And I was watching a review of Blue Beetle and the guy was saying that it was like clockwork. Every seven minutes, they had to have a scene that showed you that white people were evil. And the director, I think he was told to let his freak flag fly. He, it was very important to him that everyone be Mexican. It wasn't Latinos in general, and he's Puerto Rican, but he wanted to make a Mexican movie, everyone being Mexican, all the actors were either Mexican-American or came from Mexico. And then he used um, his feelings about displacement, colonialism, and gentrification to inform the movie that he made. So that was probably his pitch to the studio like i'm gonna make a superhero movie about how colonialism is bad and they're like <laughs> perfect and i think the ball really got rolling on the production of the movie after george floyd so another flop is flushed out of the system and i think next week there's a movie called gran turismo based on a video game 
And then that's the last week of the summer box office. And then all the movies that are supposed to come out for the holiday season and New Year's, um, no one knows if they're actually going to come out or not because of the actor's strike. I mean, I personally don't care if they can't make new movies and TV shows. I haven't, haven't been enjoying what they've been making lately anyways. I think they should all go sit in the corner and think about what they've done. Four out of 12 of the new and upcoming movies right now are gay. And I'm getting this from Dan Merle on YouTube. He has a series of videos called Charts with Dan. He does one every week. And he's not anti-woke. It's too bad because he really gets into the data. If you're anti-woke, like me, you can, just, you can watch his charts and be like, there it is. There's the wokeness. There's the person going woke and getting broke. It's clear as day. You've broken out the numbers right there. You've proved it with that graph. But then he doesn't mention it. Like he's the one who compares the percentage of Rotten Tomato critics who say a movie is good compared to how good they say it is. And it turns out, you know, anything with diversity or inclusion, all the critics say it's good. And then when you, when you ask them how good do they say it is, they're like, oh, it's, it's not really that good. It's barely good enough for me to say, it's just good enough for me to say that it's good. Because Rotten Tomatoes pretty much only publishes that one number, the percentage of critics that say it's good, not how good does each one say it. Like this past week, a movie called Bottoms, which is a gay movie, um, I think it was like 97% of critics say it's good. Basically, all the critics say it's good. But then how good do they say it is? They say, you know, it's decent. It's, it's better than bad. But every critic agrees. They do not want to get called out for criticizing a gay movie. But so using Dan Merle's 12 upcoming and new movies, um, there's four of them that are gay. What? One of them's called Passages. I think that's gay. Oh, that's a trans movie. That's about the life. Is it? No, it's not. Anyways, Passages, some sort of gay men thing. Bottoms, which should be about gay men. I'm going to talk about that. But anyways, it's about lesbians. Uh, Red, white, and royal blue. I talked about that. That's like um, Princess Diaries, but with gay guys. And those are all explicitly gay storylines and probably gay actors. And then Talk to Me, that's the recent horror movie where I don't think it's about gayness, just a bunch of the, you know, the lead actress, her best friend, they're all gay. I think it's about everyone getting killed by a monster. And I always leave a comment for Dan trying to get him to break out the stats in an anti-woke manner, which he ignores me. But um, I would not be surprised if like four out of 12 is the most gay movies new and upcoming ever. And I think some or maybe all of them actually are supposed to be good. If you like gay movies, you know, this is it, baby. This is your weekend. I mean, to me, as long as you keep it out of the children's programming, make all the gay stuff you want. And I don't know if I'd enjoy watching them. I basically, I haven't tried. Um, the first problem is, is that people inflate how good the movie is if it's a gay movie. So you can't go by the score. You're like, oh, nine out of 10. It's like, yeah, four of those points are because it's gay. So you just, you can't trust the ratings. I think Brokeback Mountain won the Oscar basically because it's gay. Like, you know, no one's re-watching that movie. 
Same thing with stuff like 12 Years a Slave. They're like, that was so great, is what I have to say, and I ain't never watching that shit again. And I don't want to watch gay guys kissing, but I think they know to tone that stuff down. I mean, at least in the more mainstream ones, like Red, White, and Royal Blue. Maybe I'll check that one out. But I got Black Spider-Man 2 on my list. I haven't even, I haven't even got that one watched yet. I mean, it doesn't sound that good to me, but I'm not into rom-coms in general. You know, if a rom-com is really good, if it's just a good movie, then I'll enjoy it, and who cares about the rom-com part? So maybe, if a gay movie is really good, then who cares about the gay romance? I mean, some of these look like hardcore, I don't know what the hell, I ain't gonna check that out. But I should give Red, White, and Royal Blue the 15-minute test just to, hell, just so I could talk about it. I will keep both hands where I can see them. There's all these gay movies out, so let's talk some gay stuff. And I'm a 2010 liberal, so I support gay rights. It's just that I don't support this, you know, new weird trans and kids thing. I hear this repeatedly from the left, NPR, etc. And it's like, you know, if you don't want to do drag queen story hour or whatever, if you don't, if you don't want to mix kids with gay stuff, then they're like, you're against gay rights. And the mainstream media doesn't allow any opposing opinions on their shows, so there's no one to come back and be like, are you saying that sexualizing children is a gay right? I mean, you know, logic does not apply. It's just, what do you, what can you say, what can you make up to attack your enemy? But I was like, screw it. I'm going to watch one of these gay movies, or at least some of one. So I downloaded Red, White, and Royal Blue. And apparently that's the name of a book that maybe came out in 2020. And it's just a, you know, it's a boy meets girl. They don't get along, but eventually they fall in love, except it's two boys. Or at least that's the movie. And supposedly the book is really good. And, you know, depending on how you feel about gay stuff, it probably is good. There's that thing where, you know, like the movie is never as good as the book. That's just because even a bad book is kind of good. But so it's on Amazon. I downloaded it. Uh, I'm like, I'm going to watch 15 minutes of this. And the story is that the U.S. president is a woman and her son is a gay guy. Or he's, I don't know, I didn't get far enough into it. He's bi or something. Anyways, he's the kind of the star of the show. He's in his 20s. And then he goes over to Britain and he falls in a giant cake with Prince Henry, who's basically like Prince Harry, except he's gay. And basically, it's just a paint-by-numbers, um, you know, written-by-AI, exact hallmark rom-com, except that it's two dudes. And if you're listening to my podcast, you probably haven't watched very many hallmark movies, but they're actually quite good. They have a similar kind of made-for-TV, low-budget thing, and yet they're good. They're consistent with their quality. Like, I accidentally watched a hallmark movie once, and then I typed in top 10 Hallmark movies ever or something. And then I watched, I don't know, the top three on the list. And I was like, those three are all great movies. And anyway, I didn't, I didn't watch it anymore, but that, they are good. They're very white bread. A lot of times it's like a man and a woman and a holiday. You know, like Christmas. Here, here's some people falling in love over Christmas. And I think, you know, they never get along at the beginning and they fall in love at the end. And it's on a holiday. But anyways, this was a gay version of it. And I got 15 minutes into it, and I was like, if you didn't know this was a gay movie going in, you almost wouldn't know that it was a gay movie. Like, they didn't do anything gay. I mean, there's, 
I mean, it's a little gay to fall into a giant cake with another guy, but, you know, like a kid. A kid wouldn't know nothing was going on. And so, I was like, I said I'm going to watch 15 minutes. I watched 15 minutes, and I turned it off. And then I was like, well, goddammit, I got to see something gay happen. So I went back and watched it, and I forget how long it takes. Maybe about 33 minutes in or something, uh, one guy surprises the other guy by kissing him, out, kind of out of the blue. They're having a big fight. There's a big blow-up. One of them leaves the party, and then the other guy goes after him. Why'd you leave the party? And then, you know, it's, been, it's hard being a prince. Everyone wants to date you, but it's never the person you want to date. And what are you talking about? You know, you've got, you've got all the options in the world. And then, big, big old kiss. And so I said good enough. I didn't watch anymore, but I don't, I don't think there's anything crazy. I don't think they go bareback later on. One thing that was interesting is both actors... Well, it's not clear that they're gay. The prince guy is some... It looks like a... I mean, they both are super handsome. Anyways, the prince guy is some model-looking blonde guy. And he's in, like, every movie nowadays. So they're, they're trying to make him a big star. He usually plays a straight guy. He just did a Netflix rom-com where he was straight. So I think if I was 12, I would have seen them kiss. And I'd be like, ew, gross. But when I was watching them kiss, I was like, huh, that's a couple straight guys who are like... I mean, you know, I'm an actor. Uh, <laughs> you do it for your craft. So there you go. I watched it so you don't have to. I think there is a genre, I don't know, a genre of one, or maybe there's probably a bunch of them, of these very innocuous gay movies. There's also, like, you know, not ones that are not made by Amazon. I think this is the number one movie on Amazon this week. Um, there's other ones where they are going bareback or whatever. They're like, let's try and offend the poor boyfriend who goes with his girlfriend to see a gay movie. I just don't watch movies. If I watched movies, I'd go watch one of those until I couldn't take it anymore and tell you how it goes, but I probably won't. And the other thing to talk about or to say about gay movies is that, you know, there's this thing where you're cisgender, which means you are the gender that you were assigned at birth. I mean, you know, whatever, just a boy is a boy and a girl, a girl is a girl. But so you can be gay cisgender, right? You're the doctor said you were a boy when you were born, and when you grew up, you're a boy. You just like other boys. I was going to say something dirtier, but anyways, you know. But basically, gay men who are cisgender, um, they're kind of an interesting, marginalized, minority, person of color group. Well, not person of color. I mean, black people get all the oppression Olympics points because you know, even though they were freed 160 years ago and... You know, not counting the South, they've been had equal rights for a hundred years, and then in the South they've had it for sixty years, and blah blah blah. The reason why they still get all the oppression points is because to this day, on average, blacks are poor and not doing well. Like if for some reason blacks were all rich and Asians were all poor, then Asians would have all the oppression points. It's not really how bad were was each group treated by whites in the past. It's how bad is. Because everyone, you know, we, we can make up a story if, if there wasn't a story that happened. We can make up stories if we have to about how all the minorities were treated by evil whites in the past. But then you only, give a, you only bother to make up those stories today if the group is still doing poorly. You know, Japanese were sent to internment camps in the 40s. Who cares? They're rich. I'm rich, bitch. Rick James. But so I don't know how I know this. So maybe it's not true, but I'm pretty sure it is. But basically... Like, gay white men, they're just as rich and successful as normal white men.
like there's this false narrative about how black trans women, the ones with penises, are always getting murdered and it's because they're trans. But in fact, black trans women get murdered the exact same rate as black men. So basically, whatever kind of black person you are, if you have a penis, you get murdered at the same rate. Doesn't matter if you call yourself a woman. And so with gay men, it's the same thing. They're white and they're men. That's the controlling factor. And white men are the best, have white privilege. I'm not sure. First one doesn't sound good. The second one is not true. I don't know. White men are successful, put it that way. And so a lot of the people who create movies and TV shows are gay white men. And I think in the past they would just, whatever, they put in a man and a woman and but now times have changed and now they can put in a man and a man when they want. And apparently if this, I believe this thing is going to number one on Amazon, in which case we may see, we may, the floodgates may open up and white men, gay white men may be able to make a lot of whatever, gay white men movies. Well, so there was this movie called Bros that came out in the theater maybe six months ago, and it was a gay comedy that I think did have a lot of rough riding or something gross, and it was an enormous flop. So then it was looking like, okay, gay white men are not going to get to make all the movies they want. But now maybe, but now Amazon is turning that on its head. We don't know. I'll be, I'll be curious to see how this goes. Basically, when gay... Like, I think, uh, I don't know, a lot of the famous HBO shows, or some of them, some of the famous cable shows, are made by gay white men, and what they do is they'll just throw in one or two gay male characters into an ensemble cast where a lot of them are straight. So I'm just going to be watching, we're just, we're just going to see, we're going to see how gay stuff gets here. They got one success, if the, if the next one is a big flop, they got a problem, but if they can get two in a row, I think they may be onto something. Let me say the difference between a straight guy and a gay guy. I've had a number of gay guys as friends. I have a group of friends that includes a number of gay guys. You know, they're not, they're not the ones that I hang out with personally one-on-one. -on -one, but anyways, but in a group, hung out with them quite a bit. And a lot of this hanging out came when I was about, you know, about 18 to 30. And it's funny, like when I was... 20 years old, I did not think I was attractive and all the chicks should be on my tip, but when I go and look back at pictures of me when I was 20 years old, I was a smoking hottie. And it wasn't just that, like, all my friends, I mean, all my, we were all better looking back then, thin and in shape and blah, blah, but whatever. Not everyone was quite as much of a smoking hottie back then as I was, and I didn't even know it. You know, they could have made a movie where you, I took off my glasses and I was attractive. But anyways, the thing about gay guys is that when they're hanging, you know, and they were all older than me, when they're hanging out with basically just a hot piece of ass, it doesn't matter. Except every once in a while when they would get way too drunk and then they'd be like, hey, you wanna? And I'd be like, wanna what? <laughs> get the fuck out of here. And in fact, I, you know what? I should have, if I could go back in time, I should have done one thing that they wanted me to do if I, I, I would go back in time and I would do one thing that they wanted me to do if I could have just taken the hint from them, which is that every time you're drunk, go find, a, go find some hot chick and say to her, hey, you wanna? 
I think I would have gotten laid a lot more. Anyways, it didn't work for them with me. And then one time, one of them did something that I didn't want to see him too much after that, but I was living in a house with roommates, and this one gay guy, he was over at the house, I don't know, for reasons unrelated to me, but anyway, it was just me and him in the house. I'm not even sure I knew he was there. We had a basement. Anyways, I went down into the basement, and he was in the basement, which was where our TV room was, and he had some sort of porno on there, and it was like a threesome. It had a girl, a normal-looking guy, and then I guess what we would call a trans woman. Yeah, I don't know. we didn't have that word back then. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I got the hell out of there, and he got the hint. But I think that was his idea. He was hoping that like having the girl in the gay porno and then me walking in maybe i'd be like oh hey i watched a little bit of this with you and then oh what are they doing anyways didn't work well there's about 12 minutes of gay stuff that probably everyone listening to this podcast turned it off but the reason i was i didn't mean to talk that long but what i wanted to talk about was lesbians because i like lesbians i mean i have a bunch of lesbian friends in real life too but that's not the kind i like you know i like the whatever the kind on screen, the naked kind. So, as a reminder, gay men are genetically gay, but all women are bisexual. So, you know, it's a much safer type of movie, adult movie, we will say, uh, to do it with an, another girl. You know, she's not going to hurt you. And so, all those lesbian pornos, that's straight women. I mean, you know, a friend told me. I think think they make actual lesbian porn of some sort but it's like I don't know they're like ugly and they just talk a long time I'm not sure I've never seen one but that's how I imagine it is it's who knows what it's like I mean foreplay between a man and a woman is the end game between two lesbians you might hear some thunder in the background if the mic picks it up uh the weather is trying to start more wildfires right now but so, one of the lesbian movies that's out now is called Bottoms. And now, I've heard of the term bottoms with gay men, right? You know, if you're a bottom, you're a catcher. If you're a top, you're a pitcher. You got power bottom, power top. That means you only do whichever pitching or catching it is that you like. And, you know, don't think about it too much. It's kind of gross. But I will say, like, that phrasing kind of rolls off the tongue pretty well. So, I don't think lesbians have that much of a good stuff to say so anyways apparently lesbians have taken taken the top and bottom phrasing and applied it to themselves so i'm just going to read some crap off the internet about that because i'm like why is this movie called bottoms when it's all a bunch of chicks trying to get laid with other chicks all right what do we got here top bottom and switch which are you and what are you looking for while the terms top bottom and switch were created by and for gay men they are becoming more frequently used among LB, LGBTQ plus women and non-binary people. They can be pretty confusing because they can refer to someone's sexual preferences, level of dominance, role in their relationships, or all of the above. What is a top? A top in a lesbian relationship is generally the one who is more dominant and prefers giving to receiving sexual pleasure. What is a bottom? As you might expect, a bottom is essentially the opposite of a top. A bottom in lesbian dating is often called a, in quotes, pillow princess. Bottoms tend to be more submissive and prefer to receive sexual pleasure than to give it. As with tops, most bottoms are happy to top occasionally 
It's just their preference to receive. But there are some, some lesbian bottoms who only want to receive and never want to give, also called hard bottoms. So there you go. Now you know. Now I know at least I've had at least one female listener in my day. So here we go. This article, what is this? Where, where, her, I don't know what this is. Anyway, some article. They have some encouragement for women who want to be lesbians, and I will encourage you with their words. How do you know which category you fall into? These terms fall on a spectrum, so it's perfectly okay not to fit neatly into one of these boxes. A lot of people don't use these terms at all. Most people gradually learn where they fall on the spectrum from experimenting with partners, with porn, with toys, and exploring what gets them most aroused. Don't go thinking into it you should be one or the other. Be open to the options and have fun experimenting. Well, there you go. I wanted to talk about lesbians. I ended up with four minutes of that, and all of it was read from someone else, and then 12 minutes of me talking about being gay. So, I don't know. Luckily, I'm too old. I'm too old to switch. So, I live in southern Oregon, and it's wildfire season. And on Saturday, they've raised people to level one evacuation, people to the south of me. I'm not worried, but it's interesting, so I'll just I'll tell you about it. So first, if you live anywhere in America that has wildfires and you want to use the internet to learn about it, um, Facebook is the place that like the official organizations go. For me, it's uh, facebook.com slash IV fire. I think it's called. Anyways, the Illinois Valley Fire Department. And also ODF Southwest Oregon, I think, is another Facebook page, which is uh, Oregon Department of Forestry. Southwest Oregon Division. And maybe they're on Twitter or Instagram, but I find Facebook is wonderful for keeping track of fires that are barreling down on you. In fact, where I live, like, there's always these things that you vote on every year. Are we going to spend money on the cops? Are we going to spend money on the schools? Anyways, on everything. And the one thing that everyone agrees with down here is spend money on the fire department. And so they don't do anything, generally. And in fact, these are, these are like the fire departments that fight house fires, not wildfires. It's, that's a whole nother, that's not city, that's like a state level thing. But all the city fire departments have brand new F-350s with all the trimmings. They just, you know, your job is to sit in the air-conditioned office and then occasionally drive around in a $100,000 truck. And here's the important part. Go to places, take pictures, and put them on Facebook, so... I guess that's okay. They can have a $130,000 F-350 as long as they keep doing Facebook. I'm going to start saying it's a $170,000 truck here if I don't stop. But Facebook is good, and then Google Maps is good. If you want to go, so you know, if you want to read about it, you can do that Facebook thing. But if you want to see a map of the fire that's near me, um, you can go on Google Maps. And for me, it takes a while for the map to load, but... Um, if you center it on O'Brien, Oregon, I, I'm to the north of that, but that's, that's basically the area. Look for O'Brien, Oregon, zoom out a bit, and there's a button that says layers, and you can do like traffic, satellite, blah, blah, blah. Fires or wildfires is on there. So you turn on that layer, and it will kind of show a red blob wherever the fire is, and it will also show where all the smoke is being blown. Like yesterday, we had a whole bunch of ash and smoke come in and then like, you know, overnight your car would get covered in ash. You'd kind of have to, well, I have a little, I have a little handheld cordless blower. I just blow it off. 
and I live in the empty West Coast, which is the place between San Francisco and Portland where there's tons of land and barely any people. And so fighting wildfires here is all about roads, or more to the point, there ain't no roads. And where I live, it's usually about 90 degrees, high temperature in August, but sometimes when it hits 100, that brings thunderstorms. And so there'll be lightning strikes off in the mountains where there isn't a road for you know many miles around, and then it's basically impossible to stop that fire that it starts. Like you'd have to have a helicopter flying around. It's just too large, you know, you'd have to have tons of helicopters always flying around, it's just not feasible. Helicopters or airplanes that drop water. I saw a jet, first time I ever seen that, I saw a jet the other day with a giant thing underneath it, like a, a jet the size of a, you know, hold 200 passengers. And normally when those fly overhead, they're so high in the sky you can't see them. But this one like flew just like low, like, you know, like it was a personal plane. Someone just flew low right over my head with a giant jet. But basically, if there's no roads, you can't stop the fire. But if there is roads, then they will send in tons of, you know, bulldozers. And, you know, I think maybe the most important fire prevention tool or stopping tool is a bulldozer. And they just create, you know, the equivalent of giant wide roads of nothing around the fire. And then the fire can't get out. And then you have people on foot for like, you know, some ashes jump the fire line. Oh, and I guess my fire, they're calling it the Smith River Complex because it's a bunch of fires from a bunch of little lightning strikes. And there's one road, which is Highway 199, but that's it. One road is not enough in a, you know, giant bunch of mountains. But anyways, I'm not worried because, like I say, roads will stop it. And with the fire whatever, the state and federal or whatever, I guess it's state, state level fire departments, um, what they try and do is prevent fires from burning towns and cities. And so I'm not worried because there's a little tiny town and then a small city in between me and the fire. So basically I'm safe. It's not gonna be able to get past those things. They will be shipping in people from who knows what, New York City if they have to, to save a city. We had a fire a few years ago where we got, I think my place got to level two evacu- Okay, so level vac one evacuation is be ready. Level two is pack up your shit and put it in your car, but you don't have to leave. And then level three is leave. And in fact, that's the thing I'm the most worried about, is them telling me I'm level three evacuation. And then, you know, it doesn't burn down my house, but I have to leave and go, I just don't want to leave. That would be very, very inconvenient. But I was in a level two evacuation for a fire maybe four, three, four years ago. And, but I, wa I watched it come towards me. And luckily I was kind of, there's a valley. I'm in a valley. And I was on the north side of the valley. And the fire was licking at the south side of the valley. Basically coming through a bunch of mountains that don't, don't have roads. And the answer was, whatever, they were able to stop it. Plus it's a valley where people have, you know, fields and irrigation and just a bunch of stuff the fire can't go through. So that did make me build a sprinkler system for my roof. I can go I can go put like three sprinklers on my roof and make the house wet. There was this fire in Paradise, California, I don't know, five years ago, and I think about a hundred people died. It's like this Hawaiian fire. And the people who stayed and watered their houses and fought the fire, their houses survived. I mean everyone was 
for you know was told to leave you know maybe door-to-door cops telling you to leave but anyways the people who stayed their houses made it through and then you know every house around them burned up and i'm off grid so my electricity doesn't stop just because the fire does all the power lines so i don't know i wouldn't i don't think i would leave oh and i think what happens is embers come blowing in from the wind and they land in the debris in your gutters or maybe you have some firewood stacked next to your house or something like that and if you're home you're just like oh there's a teeny little fire in my gutter or in my firewood pile and you just put it out with a hose and if you're not there everything's gone i'm going to finish this podcast out with an old podcast i did about where are the aliens apparently i broke the subject down into two episodes it was january 8th 2022 and that was the time that i changed my podcast name from religion of woke to anti-woke podcast originally the idea was that in america people have given up their christianity and replaced it with wokeness but i think i had maybe 20 listeners back then and now that i have more than 100 so at least 80 of you probably haven't heard this there's some history of the podcast. I doubt anyone cares. I don't think there'll be any lamentations of the women. But if you already heard this or you only want to hear about politics, then this is the end of the road and thanks for listening. Where are the aliens? Part one on the Anti-Woke Podcast. Uh, Let's do some uh, science here. So the Fermi paradox is the question of In a universe with a trillion galaxies, each galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars, uh, where are all the aliens? You know, are humans alone? Are we the only ones? I think like when I was a kid in the early 80s, the idea that aliens are out there somewhere um, was considered a little bit crackpot. But as science has advanced with like, radio telescopes and tell you know Hubble telescope that's in orbit around the earth um i think scientists pretty much think that uh aliens are out there somewhere so in 1961 they started SETI which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and they had a conference and a guy a physicist named Drake he went to that con- conference with what is now called the Drake equation and in 61, they didn't know as much about uh, cosmology, you know, like uh, how stars and galaxies are, as we do today. Uh, like, you know, the universe is expanding at an increasing rate. That wasn't found out until the late 90s. So they didn't know everything in 61. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a funky equation because a lot of stuff is like, oh, we know that already. But basically the idea of his equation was something like, you know, he's trying to estimate how many um, alien civilizations that are putting out radio waves that we could detect, because that's what SETI, SETI does. They listen for radio waves from aliens. And so he was trying to estimate how many alien civilizations are putting out radio waves. And so I'm not going to, I don't know the equation offhand, but it's something like, you know, you take the number of, well, actually, no, the you know, the percentage of stars that are good enough for humans or for aliens to live near times the percentage of those stars that have some sort of planets times the percentage of those planets that are good enough to an alien to live on, 
times the percentage of those planets that life did start on, times the percentage that, you know, they got, uh, whatever, the life became intelligent, and then that intelligent life sent radio waves out, and then how long did they send it out? You know, if you send out radio waves for one year, and then you have a nuclear war and blow yourself up, then, you know, it's going to be hard to, to hear that civilization, because you'd have to be listening that particular year, and before or after, you'd never hear from them. And the answer is no one, no one, you know, no, you know, there's the equation, but it has uh, variables that people don't know the answer for. So no one knows how many civilizations there are. We may be the only one, or there may be, you know, some people think half a million civilizations in the, uh, the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. And so that's where Enrico Fermi, it was probably the 60s also, I think he was the guy who uh, created the atomic bomb or oversaw the creation of it or something. He's another physicist. These are all physicists, which, you know, a PhD in physics gives respectability to your ideas, even if they're crazy. But Fermi was just like, where are they? And I think, I think that's about all he contributed to the, to the situation. But he, still, Fermi paradox, like that's the most famous phrase. If you want to go on the Google and read about where are the aliens, just type in Fermi, Fermi paradox, F-E-R-M-I. And then within the Fermi paradox, one of the major categories that people talk about, if you want to look it up on the internet, is called the Great Filter. Like something, like we don't know which thing, we have ideas, uh, is preventing advanced civilizations from, whatever, forming and then, you know, maybe sending out radio waves. And so the first one is like life, like how common is life? So we now know that, you know, only recently, only the last like, I don't know, five, ten years, that we found out that it seems like basically every star in the whole Milky Way has planets. Like basically our solar system, the sun, you know, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, etc. cetera. Uh, it seems like it's pretty typical. I mean, maybe it's, you know, better than average. It's better, yeah, it's better than your average solar system, but it's not like something crazy. And in our solar system... Like, Venus is the exact same size as Earth. Um, it's too hot because it has, like, a whole... It has a very thick atmosphere that holds the heat in. But, like, it ain't that different than Earth. And then Mars, right? It's it's too cold because it has too thin of an atmosphere. But it's, it's not really that different from Earth either. So, I mean, there's, like, three planets that are almost good for life. If you just change a few of the things about those three planets... You know, you could change a little bit about Earth, and there'd be no life at all. Or you could change a little bit about those other two planets, and they'd probably have life. If life is easy to start. So how do we know if life is easy to start? And I'm talking like microbial, you know, single-cell you know, single life, or even, I think there's stuff even more primitive than single-cell life. You know, so whatever. Whatever the simplest kind of life is. Now, ideally, you'd go, you'd go find, you know, you'd go find a hundred planets just like Earth, and you'd look at them and you go, oh, 27 of them have life on there. So there's a 27% chance that life would start on a planet like Earth. But we only got one example. We got one Earth, and that's the only one we know. But also, that's why we're always looking for signs of life on Mars. And if Venus wasn't so hot, because I think Venus used to be a nicer, cooler planet. We'd go down there and look for life. But right now, if you send a spaceship to Venus, it gets melted. 
So we got our one example Earth. Now how can we try and figure out how hard or easy it is for life to start? And so basically, in this podcast, I'm going to be giving you numbers, and some of these numbers are going to be wrong, and it's not going to affect the point, but I'm, I'm just going to throw out numbers, and hopefully they're right. They're going to be roughly correct. So, looking at Earth, how do we get life? Well, I think Earth is like 4.7 billion years old, and it was like, I mean, no one knows for sure, but it looks like it was just hot lava, hot lava for the first, I don't know, two, three hundred million years. Let's just say the Earth was 4.7 blah blahs old, and for the first 0.3 blah blahs, uh, it was too hot for life. And then I think in the next 0.1, you know, years, life started. Like Earth cooled down, and the next 0.1, microbial or whatever life started right up. So either Earth is just completely different than all the other planets around. Or else, as soon as a decent planet cools down enough, you know, and has maybe some water and whatnot going on, boom, life starts up. I mean, this is within 100 million years, but as far as the age of things in the universe go, 100 million years is like a snap of the fingers. But then, you know, this is not, uh, this is not intelligent life yet. And so I think for the next four blah blahs, um whatever it was just single single i think we got to single cell organisms and that was it and a single cell is pretty complicated like it has a nucleus and a i don't know what but you know it ain't it ain't nothing like every cell in your body is like a little machine that's more complicated than any machine that humanity has ever created at least basically because it's so small like it's the most every cell is the most amazing is more amazing than any machine humanity has ever created and every animal's got a zillion of them. And so then it took something like 0.3 blah years to 0.5 blah years to go from single cell to maybe, al- I don't know, algae, plants, I guess plants, and then fish, and then they crawled up on the land, and then they went back into the land, and they crawled back on the land, went back into the water, and we got like monkeys, and horses are related to hippos. I think whales might be a kind of dog or something. Dinosaurs got killed by an asteroid, and then in the last hundred years, we got monkeys who can send radio waves out into space. So basically, it seems like the start of life, that happened pretty quick, and it took a real long time before you got animals with legs and fins. So it may be, this is the great filter, like, you know, what is preventing all the aliens from colonizing everywhere? Is it, you know, is it because life itself didn't start? Well, it looks like maybe that's not the case. But maybe it is it's that life just stays as, at the microbial level forever. Maybe the whole galaxy is for, full of microbial life. And we're the first planet where uh, those microbes turned into, you know, legged animals. So that's the second part. That's, a, that's the second chunk of the great filter. And, you know, you got to get past each of these filters. Basically, it filters out life and civilizations these these various things will filter out life and civilizations so that they can't be found by our radio telescopes and whatnot so hopefully that makes sense and so there's all these ideas for the great filters and so those those two are the ones behind us we've already gotten through those filters those may be filtering out most planets and whatever's but we got through them 
But that doesn't mean we don't have filters in front of us. Like you might think of nuclear war. Like, you know, if we, if we just, uh, if we invent nuclear weapons and then we just killed ourselves like down to like the last human, which is unlikely, but if we did that, then that would be another great filter. You know, you're, no one's gonna find a civilization that killed itself with nukes. And now if nukes don't do it, you know, you could have some sort of disease that kills everyone. If that sounds familiar at all right now. Like an interesting thing, I looked up, uh, you should go look this up, dear listener, um, 1977 Russian flu. Like, you know, I don't go in for conspiracy theories, like pretty much at all, but um, it looks like there's a decent chance that the flu that we have today was a lab leak, and it came from Russia in 77. Like the flu, you know, like the, the yearly vaccine flu shot that you get like every year for your entire life. Uh, that may have came from Russia. And we don't know if they let it out by accident or they may have actually designed it and then let it out by accident. I mean, it killed a whole bunch of Russians, so I don't think they did it on purpose. And like smallpox, smallpox is crazy. It, uh, it kills 30% of the people who get smallpox, you know, which is, that's almost half. And then it kills, it kills babies even more. Probably kills babies, about half of the babies. And, like, you go look up pictures of people with smallpox. I mean, it is insane. They look like lizard people, just pustules covering their entire bite. Just absolutely every inch of skin with pustules that look like scales. I think we eliminated it in, like, 1971 Bangladesh. But anyways, I don't, I don't know if this is where everyone got their smallpox. But, um, so, you know, we got rid of smallpox. There was no smallpox in the world. And then I think there was a mass grave of smallpox victims. It was like, bear, you know, like Eskimos who died in Alaska. They got thrown in a mass grave that just froze solid. And someone was like, hey, sweet. We got some living smallpox uh, viruses on these dead people. And so they, they saved it for later. And so now I think like certainly the U.S., but I think maybe Russia and China and maybe a bunch of other countries, they've all got smallpox in a lab somewhere. And you could kind of imagine... Uh, people get a little bit better at modifying viruses you can maybe modify a virus have it accidentally leak out and just literally kill everyone but anyway so some sort of a disease that could be another great filter you know if for some reason every civilization dies a disease before they can send out radio waves you know or spaceships obviously too another possibility is just some part of physics that we don't know like when nuclear bombs were first invented, some people thought that maybe the bomb would set off the atmosphere. You know, it would turn, whatever, fusion. I guess it would make fusion. Our whole, <laughs> all the air on the Earth would go into fusion, so it would be like the sun, and uh, whatever. Like, you could light the atmosphere on fire, except for much hotter in fire. Most people didn't think that would happen, and obviously they went ahead and made the bomb anyways, and it didn't light it on fire. But... People thought that was a chance. And they've got like these particle accelerators where they shoot protons around in a circle at the speed of light and make them bang into each other to, you know, because science. And one of the things they're hoping to create with that is little black holes. And according to current understanding of physics, little tiny black holes are totally safe. Like they evaporate in a zillionth of a second and are gone. But... You know, that's the current understanding of physics. If, if you're wrong about it a little bit and instead they start growing, <laughs> that could destroy it. So, you know, maybe every civilization ever 
It's like, hey, let's make ourselves a little black hole, and then poof, destroys the whole solar system or something. And another thing that might get us and everyone else is uh, AI. You know, you create these, you create uh, artificial intelligence that are smarter than the meat puppets who create them, and then who knows what will happen. One example is, I think it's called the paperclip machine. So you create some sort of advanced robot computer thing, and its job is to make paperclips. But this machine, you know, it's, it's, it's conscious, it's intelligent, and it says to itself, you know, I'm going to make paperclips, but you know what? I think, I think if I do this, I can make them even faster. So it improves itself. And if I do that, you know, I can get the resources for making the paperclips even better. So it starts changing itself to get the resources better. And the idea is, eventually, you know, it figures out how to change things molecularly, and it starts taking humans apart, turns them into the atoms, and then makes paper clips out of them. And again, maybe it just keeps going and turns the entire solar system into paper clips. And then that's the end of that. So those are some reasons why, you know, some, most, or all but us uh, civilizations might not exist long enough and be able to uh, make their presence known. And I'll say again, so that's called the Great Filter one. And that's a fun one. The Great Filter one is fun because it has a lot of little parts to it. But there's other solutions, you know, proposed solutions. Obviously, no one knows the answer. If I, if I have to say again, no one knows the answer. But there's other proposed solutions to the Fermi Paradox. One of, them, one of the ones that I like is uh, the zoo hypothesis. And because, I guess to say it again, or to make it more plain, uh, the Fermi Paradox is not... Why are there no aliens out there? It's, why don't we see evidence of the aliens? Like, there could be tons of aliens out there. But then you're asking, why don't we see any evidence? Why do we think we're alone? And so that's what the zoo hypothesis gets into. Which is, it says, yeah, well, there's aliens out there. We just don't know it. And the reason why is because they don't want us to know it. It's like the earth is a zoo, you know, and the animal, you know, like, you know, the animals in a zoo, they don't know they're in a zoo and that people are look at the, looking at them, you know, to whatever, to give their kids something to do on the weekend day. And to remind myself about the various ideas for the Fermi Paradox, um, I went and listened to some podcasts and it seems like the Fermi Paradox, I didn't know this, I didn't know this, I'm just like a straight-laced, whatever, science guy even though people are lying about scientific things for political reasons right now. But anyways, I'm a straight-laced science guy. But as far as I can tell, podcasts who talk about the Fermi Paradox, a decent chunk of them are people who love conspiracy theories. And so, you know, you might say the zoo hypothesis is like the aliens, you know, not only do they not want us to know, but actually they have come to Earth. You know, they're the ones who are like flying around the... Air Force jets, they like talk to high up government officials and you know hide the information. I mean, I think there's lots of books with lots of ideas about exactly how aliens could be amongst us, but we wouldn't know. Anyways, that's not one that I go for, but it, that's fun. That is a fun one. That would be the most fun one, maybe. Like the way I go with the zoo hypothesis, it'd be like, you know, so there's probably alien civilizations all around us. You know, maybe not every single star, but, you know, whatever. They're all over the frickin' place. 
and they would just agree, hey, don't send your radio waves towards Earth. You know, there's like a, whatever, there's an uncivilized, you know, it's like finding a tribe in the middle of the Amazon. It's like we found an uncivilized tribe in the middle of the Amazon, and don't send your radio waves towards them, because then they'll know that, there's, that, that we're out here. Or whatever way they can, I mean, you know, they would have advanced technology, so they could just hide stuff from us pretty easy. And so that would be if aliens are doing it on purpose, but they may not even have to do it on purpose. Like, another idea that's pretty logical is, is that stuff is just too far apart, you know, just between stars and whatever. It's just too far. It's too far to hear what other people are sending out. Like, I think the, uh, like the strongest radio waves that humans send out, I think, are like aircraft radar. Not on the airplane, but like radar at the airport or something. Anyways, radar. Somehow it sends out super powerful radio waves, and it sends it out into the universe, the galaxy. And I think, you know, like, say, so, okay, the closest star to us is called Alpha Centauri. It's four light years away. And if they had a planet that was identical to us... And they were shooting out radar, just out in general, pointed in all directions. Uh, with our current technology, we would not be able to tell. We would look. We would look at Alpha Centauri and go, "There's no radio waves coming from them." And I think with our current technology, like if we, I think if we wanted to send, like if we knew, first off, you know, we can barely see planets around other stars. We're like. When we see planets around other stars, it's usually like, oh, we see a Jupiter, a giant planet. We can't see the little planets. So, you know, we might not be able to see Earth around Alpha Centauri, although we'll be able to do that probably in the next, maybe the next few years, maybe the next 20 years. But if we got to the point where we could see that, oh, there's a little Earth-style planet around Alpha Centauri, and we wanted to shoot a radio wave specifically at it, not just using it for general aircraft stuff, but like, we're going to shoot this one, we're going to aim it. We're going to aim it like a gun at that particular planet. I believe that with current technology, we could shoot that, we could shoot that planet with our uh, radar gun, and our current technology could pick that up. So basically, there's no... Uh, there's no finding people, it's very hard to find people by accident. If you're directly trying to communicate to the very closest star, then it could be done. And, uh, you know, almost, at, well, whatever. All the other stars are much farther away. That's the closest star. The rest of them are farther. And we probably couldn't send a uh, signal to the next, you know, ones that are over 4 billion away. Sorry, 4 light years away. But, I mean, all that means is we just, we just got to wait for better technology. I mean, you know, we've only had radio, or radio for 100 years. So, you know, 100 years from now, who knows what kind of crazy tech we'll have, especially for listening. So, you know, we'll just wait and see. Maybe we'll, if we wait long enough, whatever. If you're a kid, if you're a kid today, I think you might find out that aliens exist. Like when you're old, you'll be like a grandpa. But for now, it's not looking good. So those other planet planets around other stars, those are called exoplanets. And in fact, the one thing we can do, now we can't pick up radio waves, but we're actually pretty good at uh, picking up what kind of atoms and molecules are in their atmosphere. So I think, yeah, starting, you know, in the next few years, we're going to start here, people are going to be able to look for oxygen in the atmosphere of exoplanets. And that's not like a rock-solid uh, proof of alien, well... Of life, you know, not intelligent life, 
but it's actually it's a decent proof of life of some sort. You know, our oxygen comes from, I think most of it comes from like algae in the ocean, but you know, plants in general too. Well, so basically, I don't think there, there's not much we can do to, at least anytime soon, we can't go out and find them, but there's things that we can look for with like telescopes and whatnot. So another thing would be looking for something called Dyson spheres. And that's where, like right now, the Earth uses barely of the barely any of the injury of the energy from the sun. Right, the sun is shooting out energy in all directions, and a little tiny bit of it hits the Earth. And so, if you wanted to be like a super crazy powerful, uh, you know, alien civilization, then what you do is you put like basically solar panels around the sun, like completely covering the sun, or maybe. I think actually, you know, a lot of people think maybe it's better to do a ring. So maybe you just do a ring of solar panels around the sun and you leave the top and the bottom open. But so, you know, scientists, cosmologists, physicists, um, they keep a look at the stars. And, you know, like if it had a ring around it, then maybe it would like make the star kind of blink on and off in a certain way. So we're looking for like super power, powerful aliens who do something like a Dyson sphere. Uh, there was a... Some star looked like it might be a Dyson sphere, and it got in the news like five years ago. And I think they've decided it was just a dust cloud that was going around the star. And one of the podcasts I was listening to that was talking about the Fermi Paradox, the lady was like, oh, I, I haven't done a podcast in a long time. I almost forgotten how to write a script. Which anyways, I don't know if you can tell, but I did not write down anything. This is all BSing. That's why I should have mentioned this earlier, but um, like another thing is, is that as we get more advanced, we send out less radio waves. Like I think as our cell phone towers go from like 3G, 4G, 5G, they kind of, you know, they kind of get lower energy. It's like, why would you waste it? You got better technology. Why would you waste energy? And, you know, I think for instance, I think back in like the 50s, maybe they used to have, um, radio stations in Mexico where they didn't limit how many how much power they could broadcast with like rock and roll stations in English based in Mexico with giant towers and I think they would they would blast it out so far that it would cover like half of America but then the government came in and said you know like every city gets its own radio station and you can't send it out above a certain wattage because then they'll interfere and, you know, if humans invent the matrix, uh, you know, why would we ever send out another radio signal ever again? Like, every human being can be the king of their own little matrix world. You know, you can have it be like Dungeons and Dragons. You can have it be like whatever. You can have it be like the matrix with the girl in the red dress. And so maybe civilizations, you know, just end up staying put and living in their own little orgasm chairs or whatever. Twitter handle at Religion of Woke, and thanks for listening. Where are the aliens part two on the Anti-Woke podcast? Well, there's another idea that kind of makes stuff a little more complicated, and I can't think of the name. It's some, it's some, it's the name of a physicist plus the word probes. It's like Einstein probes, but it's not Einstein, it's some other guy. So I'll just call them the Giga Probes here for now, because I got no internet connection to look it up. But so there's this idea of Giga Probes, 
And what it is, is like whenever, you know, a civilization gets good enough at basically like AI and robots to make a robot that can make another robot, right? Like if you can make a robot who can make another robot, then pretty soon you got an unlimited number of robots. And so if you can create a robot that's like, you know, it's kind of like a robot, it's like, a, you know, it'd be like a rocket combined with a factory of robot, make, a robot making factory, etc. Then you can send these probes out and, you know, basically, you know, maybe for the, you know, let's say the, the closest 20 stars. So you send out 20 of these probes and it's going to take them a long time to get there, you know, like a... Uh, if you know if they can go a tenth the speed of light, which is I think that's possible, but way beyond what we can do today, then you know it's going to take them 40 years to the nearest star, and you know 100 years to the ones after that. But you know, in the scheme of uh, I don't think I mentioned the universe is like uh, 13.7 billion years old. So in the scheme of billions and billions of years, 100 years ain't nothing. Actually, to make the math easier, let's say we send out 10 probes to start with. So they go to the 10 nearest stars, they land on, you know, some planets that probably don't have no life on them. And then each one of those probes builds 10 more probes. And they send those out to the next group of closest stars. So, you know, in 100 years, now you got 10 times as many probes going out there. And it's an exponential uh, math thingabobber. So you go, you know, you got 10 probes, 100 probes, 1,000. 10,000, 100,000, million, 10 million, etc. I mean, pretty soon you're getting up to a billion probes. Well, and then you got 10 billion and 100 billion, and now you've sent a probe to every star in the entire galaxy. And you know, this is not going to be fast. You know, it probably takes a million, let's just say it takes a million years. Like, it ain't, it, you know, it'd probably take about a million years, something like that. Well, a million years, I mean, that's crazy. That's longer than, you know, humans have been around. But again, compared to the age of the universe and the age of the galaxy and whatnot, a million years ain't nothing. That's almost, it's a little longer than a snap of the fingers, but it's not that long. I remember, they're called von Neumann probes. So basically, there's no reason to think that humans could not, you know, invent von Neumann, you know, in the next thousand years. I'm sure humans, with the way technology is going, probably in the next hundred, but let's just say in the next thousand years, humans could send out 10 von Neumann probes. And you don't have to do anything. You know, humanity could blow up. You could blow up the whole Earth or whatever. But those von Neumann probes would still be going out there. And in a million years, they would have gone to every single star in the entire Milky Way. And I guess they'd be sending back messages telling us that they found, like, a planet that's nothing but smoking hot girls with blue skin. I mean, that's what I'm hoping for. Like, there's no men on the planet at all, and yet the women still like men. They're tired of the muff diving. But okay, so the idea of the von Neumann probes is that all you need is so somewhere in the Milky Way, some other alien civilization that uh, got smart, got technology, like a million years before we did. And so, since there's billions of years, it seems likely that, you know, we're not the first one to, to uh, think of any of these ideas. You know, the aliens, they're like, oh, one plus one equals two, just like us. Well, so anyways, the von Neumann probe thing is like, 
it means you can go everywhere. You can send you can send robots out to the entire galaxy in a, pretty easily, you know, in comparison to <laughs> in comparison to the age of the galaxy and the blah blah blah. You can actually send out like, you know, spaceships to every single star. Not a big deal. Now, you know, if they send a spaceship to our solar system, I mean even right now, right? The spaceship might just like look at us and say, "Oh, we got some people who are uh whatever, they invented nukes and they're just now thinking about inventing AI and then just send a signal back, you know? So, I mean, there could be a von Neumann probe looking at us right now. Like to go back to the zoo hypothesis, it's like the prime directive from Star Trek if you ever watched that show. But basically, the idea there is that when you find a primitive society, you don't just like jump in and, you know, for instance, conquer it or even, you know, help them. Like, you know, like here's what you would not want to do when you find a tribe in the Amazon that's never had contact with white man. Hey, tribe, nice to meet you. Would you like a whole bunch of AK-47s? Oh, and another possible solution to the Fermi paradox that I forgot to mention is... What if the aliens are evil, you know, like all the movies? I think this is maybe called Dark Forest or Black Forest Hypothesis or something. But basically, there could be some super advanced uh, alien civilization, you know, that just conquers huge areas of the galaxy or between galaxies, who knows what. And the thing that's important to them is that no other intelligences come up and get super powerful and make life hard for them. So therefore, they just squash any uh, upcoming intelligent races like a bug. Like right now, Earth, you know, sending out its radar waves and its, uh, you know, I Love Lucy episodes. We might be like, hey, hey, over here, over here, come squash us like a bug. And maybe with enough thought on the matter, you know, all the all the alien civilizations realize, you know what, it's better to keep quiet. Better to not take a chance. And so we're surrounded by a bunch of civilizations that don't send out any radio waves and... I guess too bad for them, we're about to bring in the uh, galactic overlords. Alright, I want to throw in the related concept of panspermia. Yes, yeah, spermia. You heard me right. So panspermia is the idea that life came from another planet or whatever. Life came from somewhere else and then landed on Earth and that's how our life started. I mean, they could have called it Panagia. Doesn't sound as good, I guess. But anyways, I mean, there's a million of these facts about what is it called? Abiogenesis. That's how life got started. Abiogenesis. But I bring up panspermia because I just learned. Apparently, back in the I don't know the 60s, I guess, when we were going to the moon or before we went to the moon, we sent some sort of probe. Before humans, we sent a probe. And then when the humans went, they picked up that probe and brought it back. And on that probe was some streptococcus blah 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 virus. Like basically strep throat. So strep throat was put on a probe, it landed on the moon, we brought it back and could see that strep throat was still on it. So you know, if you were to combine that idea with the von Neumann probes, Sending out whatever, you know, whatever kind of primitive life is the most likely thing to succeed, uh, whatever. You could spread life throughout the galaxy like, holy cow. 
And so one of the podcasts I was listening to remind me about this stuff was, I forget what it's called. I think it's called As Above, So Below. And apparently there's two podcasts called that. One of them's like a couple of black people who do yoga. Anyways, it's the other one. And it was interesting. You know, they're talking about the Fermi Paradox, but it seems like, you know, one of the things they talk about a lot is conspiracy theories. And it seemed like one of the guys, basically, he believed the conspiracy theories. The other guy, maybe not so much. He's like, hey, I'm not... (laughs) He's like, I don't want to go into that. Or the other guy's like, oh, there's not lizard people, but he's a flat earther, I guess, or whatever. He likes the flat earth concept. I do not look down on people who are into conspiracy theories, because I think it's a fundamental part of the human brain to believe in what we now call conspiracy theories. Makes me think of this guy that I used to work with, and uh, whatever. He he liked conspiracy theories, basically. And then this other guy we were working with was telling him about this... I forget the name of this conspiracy. You could look it up. But there's this idea that with every social security number, the government has like a bank account or something in your name, in your number, um, that has, I forget what, like 5 or $10 million. So somehow, like, every... U.S. citizen with a social security number, whatever, there's five or ten million dollars just sitting there waiting for you if you, if you do something, something. I don't, you know, obviously no one's ever gotten that money. But anyways, my one buddy, smart guy, loved that, loved that, loved that co-worker at the time, or whatever, he was just a great, he was a great guy that I really liked, and he heard the other guy talking about this, you got millions of dollars based on your SSN, and he's like, I mean, he just believed it. He just believed it right there. Right then and there, he believed it. And that night, I went and looked it up, and it's, you know, some guy who wrote a book who's promoting this idea, and it's it ain't true. And I told him, and he was like, oh, you know, he was sad. He, it wasn't like he kept believing it, but he was sad. He had believed it, and then all of a sudden, he didn't believe it, and he was sad. And so this podcast I was listening to, it's like, the guy believes in, I mean... Well, here's the thing. Like, he believes in flat Earth, but then he also believes in, like, um, a hollow Earth. And there's, like, civilizations waging a battle, you know, under the ground. And I can't remember... I can't remember all the ones... I mean, just, you know, just in, like, a five-minute period, he brought up, like, seven things that I'd ever heard of. Other than that... Well, actually, even his, his flat Earth, it was much more complicated than I thought flat Earth was. Apparently, he calls it Puddle Earth. The real flat Earth is Puddle Earth. And that means that you have, you know, whatever, the oceans and the continents, and then that's surrounded by a ring of ice. And then outside that is more, like, nice water and continents, and then another ring of ice. And apparently it just goes out and out and out. But so then the other guy in the podcast, he brings up, uh, there was a time that Elon Musk, you know, the guy who creates rocket ships, um, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and Joe Rogan asked him if he believed in aliens. And Elon said, I haven't seen any evidence of aliens. Which I think is the correct answer. He didn't say he doesn't believe that aliens exist somewhere. He just hasn't seen any evidence of it. I think maybe he said, like, you know, show me some some place where they excavate an ancient civilization and they come up with a, you know, a one-inch long piece of magnesium. You know, which is basically something you could buy on eBay for five bucks right now, but something they couldn't do back then. So that would give you some proof of ancient technology intermixing with humans, etc. 
And then the conspiracy theory guy, he just he jumps in. He's like, what? You don't know about the, I forget what it was called, the Caruthian something or other, the Caruthian machine, which was supposedly a machine that had gears that allowed sailors to navigate the oceans, you know, thousands of years before compasses or whatever it is that they use on boats were invented. And his, you know, his co-host is like, hey, man, I'm not saying that there aren't <laughs> ancient, you know, machines and metals or whatever. I'm just repeating what Elon Musk said, basically just to calm down the, the situation. Okay, but what's my point? Like Basically, there's this guy, you know, he believes in the flat earth, but, you know, but does he really believe in it? Because, like, you know, I'm sure if... Whatever, he believes in the flat earth, but if, you know, if, if all of a sudden... We dug into the ground and found that, in fact, the earth is round, but it's hollow. Like, he was ready to switch, you know, he was ready. He's believing in both of them at once, right? Like, the earth was flat, and then also, he was also, you know, halfway, halfway believing all these things, that the earth is round, but hollow. And I guess with the flat earth stuff, it's like, whatever, there's no aliens out there because the sky is not real. But then if the earth is hollow, sure, the aliens are here and they're controlling the government etc. It was just interesting. I think, I mean, I think the guy was really having a lot of fun with it. He really had some fun stuff. I'm sure he's going on the internet reading about some really fun stuff. And he didn't really seem to care. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, you know, he's not like, I'm going I'm to get a PhD in flat earth physics and go debunk the hollow earth, hollow earth jackasses. He was basically like, come one, come all. I'll believe every bit of it. And he didn't care if they contradict each other. So that was just interesting. All right, let's talk a little more about abiogenesis and Elon Musk. So they've tried to do abiogenesis in the lab. Like there's scientists, I'm sure, out there right now trying to create life in the lab. And I think, like, you know, the way they try and do it, first off, no one has succeeded in creating life. And in fact, you can look at the DNA of, like, all the living things on the planet and you can see you can tell by dna that it all goes back to one single initial organism so that kind of i mean that makes things a little funky it's like yes life started very early on earth but it started one time and there was never ever a, a second time that it started because that second time you know might have different dna or something or at least the first time it started those animals killed all the second ones or whatever but to try and create life and, you know, start heading towards some DNA. DNA is like an incredibly complicated molecule. But I think what you want are amino acids. So I don't even know what an amino acid is. But somehow amino acids are the building blocks of DNA and maybe life in general. And amino acids, I think, they can appear, you know, like in a... Whatever. They can appear in a puddle. I think, you know, life comes from, uh, comes from the water initially. So anyways, the idea for abiogenesis is that there's some amino acids in some water, and then I think what they think happens is lightning hits it. So electricity or some other, you know, however electricity gets there. So lightning hits some amino acids in some water. And I haven't heard of anything, I haven't heard anything new on this in 10 years or whatever, but I think, you know, in labs across the world, occasionally they are, uh, running electricity through some water with some amino acids 
and they never ever get anything living. So we'll just have to wait. Basically, don't hold your breath, but uh, you know maybe someday they'll uh, they'll come up with something. Otherwise, we don't know how life started like at all. And then Elon Musk, he is trying to create rockets so that humans can create a city on Mars. Like what he will kind of, you know, what he says basically is he's like, I want to make humans a multi-planetary species so that consciousness can be protected from some sort of disaster. Like if, you know, one of those great filters that I mentioned, I don't know, it's just nuclear war for instance. If you got a, you know, it has to be self-sustaining. So if you got a self-sustaining civilization on Mars, and then you know you have a giant nuclear war on Earth, well, it doesn't matter. You know, the consciousness is not extinguished. Humans are not dead. And you might say, well, that's silly. You know, what? What? Why are you so worried? Why are you so worried about humans or whatever? And uh, it kind of goes to the the Fermi paradox, where it's like. There doesn't seem to be any, there's no evidence of aliens out there at all. So maybe what's important is that you get yourself on two planets right off the bat because something you don't know about is about to destroy one of the civilizations. And I should mention, Elon Musk, so he does Tesla and SpaceX. He's got two companies. A lot of people hate him. You know, they they confuse the, uh, the Jeff Bezos penis-shaped rocket and say, oh, these penis-shaped rockets are so stupid with what Elon Musk is doing. But Elon Musk has a few things going. He's got uh, his Tesla car company, which does, like, solar electricity and, you know, stops cars from using gas. And so he's almost single-handedly... I mean, basically, when I say single-handedly, first off, he's got a giant company. And second off, he he may fail. But if he succeeds, he is single-handedly solving climate change with solar panels and electric cars. He's single-handedly protecting humans from killing themselves by getting them to be on two planets in case something bad happens. And then he has this thing called Starlink, which goes along with SpaceX. It's like a subdivision of SpaceX, where they're putting thousands, possibly tens of thousands of satellites into low-Earth orbit that provide internet to people on the ground. And so we don't know exactly, but you know, maybe the problem, I mean, they got problems, but maybe the me- the mega problem that like, you know, Africa and other shithole country places, continent, shithole continents have, is they don't have the internet. And that's why they're poor. And so I think that definitely is part of the problem. And so he may be also single-handedly solving the problem of poor people around the world. Twitter handle at Religion of Woke, and thanks for listening. And here's the real end of the road, and again, thanks for listening.